Um, chapter 53, if you're using the church Bible, it's page 740. Page 740, Isaiah 53. And here we are reading things about Jesus um, about 700 years before he came. So let's read Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Page 740. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that is Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and cried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Amen. Let's turn now in the second half of the Bible which is called the New Testament. It deals now with the period um, uh, during Christ's coming and after his coming. Uh, we're reading from the book of Acts, chapter 17, page 1113. Acts, chapter 17. This is what is um, sometimes called the second missionary journey of Paul. This is when he went to towns and new places with the gospel um, and preached there uh, Christ the King, the Saviour King, 
uh, for the first time uh, to those people. And this was happening uh, around 50 AD. So we read chapter 17, verse 1, page 1113. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men uh, who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Amen. Please keep your Bible open at this passage. It is our practice when we are having the Lord's Supper uh, to take a theme that we look at on the Wednesday evening, the Lord's Day morning, and then in the evening service. And we've been doing that in this communion season. Uh, and our theme has been words that are found in the Gospel of John. Words, Behold your King. And those words were spoken by Pontius Pilate, the Roman Secretary of State for Judea, the one who ruled there on behalf of Rome. They were spoken of Jesus. And these words were spoken, Behold your King, to the Jewish leaders, who, as we saw this morning, had delivered Jesus up to Pilate to be crucified. This evening our subject is proclaiming the king. We thought this morning about how the king was delivered up uh, and we thought uh, about um, uh, other aspects of the king's work uh, as well. How uh, he was cursed of God and how he was honoured by the women uh, and Joseph uh, and also Nicodemus. And now tonight we're thinking of proclaiming the king. 
And that's what comes out here in Acts chapter 17. In the opening nine verses, Luke, and he is an historian, and he's the human author of this book. He records information about the time when the gospel was first preached in the ancient city of Thessalonica. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know your ancient history, Thessalonica was the capital of the province of Macedonia, what would now be northern Greece, that nation that is in such financial trouble at this time in the Eurozone. And Thessalonica was itself a harbour town, a place of great trade, because people could cross the sea, people could go by a main road as well, and so there was a lot of trade went through Thessalonica. This um, city was made a free city by the Romans in 42 BC. And that meant it had limited rights of self-government. A bit like Scotland within the United Kingdom, uh, having its own parliament. This city had a significant Jewish population. It had a Jewish church building called the Synagogue. And it was a place where Jews met on their Sabbath, what is our Saturday, for worship. So when Paul comes to this city to proclaim the King, to proclaim Jesus, he goes immediately to this place of Old Testament worship to preach Jesus Christ. And in that synagogue there were not only those people from the Old Testament that we read about, but also some of the Greeks and the Romans had abandoned their false gods to join uh, the Jews in the worship of the living, true Creator God. So, this is the congregation. This is the city in which Paul proclaims the King. So what does he proclaim? Well, if you turn to the rear side of your order of service, you will see that there are three things that we want to note about Paul's proclamation of the King. And they're based on verse 2 and verse 7. We're not told a great deal about what Paul said. There's far more time given to how people responded. And the trouble that some Jews stirred up for Paul and the missionaries because of that malice that we thought about in this morning that is in the human heart towards God and Christ. But we're told in verse 2, 3 and 7 as it were a skeleton of what Paul preached. Let's remind ourselves, on three Sabbath days, that's our Saturday, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. And then verse 7, here's what the troublemakers uh, said about 
Paul and his preaching. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. That is an exaggeration. That is a contradiction. That is to try and get them into trouble with Caesar. But they were saying this next part. There is another king, Jesus. And I think it is appropriate on this jubilee weekend where there is so much focus and attention being placed on the Queen of England and her reign of 60 years that we say tonight there is another king, Jesus. A greater king, a more worthy king, uh, a more admirable king, um, a more glorious king than any earthly king or queen. So let's think then about what Paul is saying here in these two verses as he proclaims the king. First of all, proclaiming the scriptural or the biblical Christ. And by that I mean proclaiming the Christ of the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, where our first reading was taken from. Synagogue worship, which Paul himself had been involved in, and which he now attends in Thessalonica, was worship that consisted of the singing of the Psalms, the offering of prayer, the reading of the law, and the prophets, and then the preaching of a sermon, and the giving of tithes and offerings. Very similar to what we do today, and what New Testament churches did. Except that now, our whole focus in worship is on the Christ. And they didn't have that. They had lost that, as we'll see. Uh, and they'd lost the sense of looking for that. And we'll see that in a moment. Now these people had gathered in the synagogue on their Jewish Sabbath, our Saturday. They took the first half of our Bible, the Old Testament, seriously. They sang, for example, Oh, how we love your law. It is our meditation all the day. Sung, they sang about how it filled with wisdom, made them wiser. Uh, and richer than gold. For those Old Testament scriptures, they knew that God was going to raise up a man born of a woman. That a son was going to be born to some Jewish woman who would defeat Satan and who would deal with the problem of sin. Every time a male child was born into a family, the question would be asked, could this be the promised one? And there was a name that they come to, came to associate with this son who would be born. He would be the Christ. And that means the anointed of God. Or he would be the Messiah, was another name. One's a Greek word, and the other's a Hebrew, it's the same. 
uh, thought. And so centuries passed, millennia passed, and while the Jews had some outstanding men of God, Joseph and Moses and David and Elijah and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and many, many others outstanding men, none of them was the promised one. None of them was the Messiah. Now in the final century of the Old Testament period, before this promised one came, the Jewish nation went through a traumatic experience that left an indelible mark on its psyche and its life. What was it that happened? They lost their independence. They no longer could rule themselves. They were conquered by the Roman Empire 42 BC. And now these Romans, whom they looked on as Gentile dogs, unclean people, people who didn't know God, these people now rule us. And they hated the presence of the Romans in their country. And so that led people then, and the religious teachers, as they read the Old Testament, and as they read about the promised one who would come, they began to read some extra things, some on inappropriate things, into this one who would come. The Christ, the Messiah. What would he do? These religious leaders said. Well the focus now is not on someone who would come to deliver us from the sin that is in our hearts. But one who will come to drive out the Romans. One who will be a political Messiah. A political saviour. Not a spiritual saviour. And so as a result... The scriptural Christ, the Christ of the Old Testament, the promised one of the Old Testament. A spiritual saviour to save from sin began to fade increasingly into the background. To the point that he was hardly mentioned. The need for a saviour from sin. And by the time Jesus came, the false teaching that the Messiah would be a political leader, a military warrior, was widespread and pervasive in these synagogues up and down the land of Judea and across Asia and into Greece and at Thessalonica where Paul now is. And Paul is arriving there about a hundred years after the time of the conquest of the Jews by Rome. He's arriving there in AD 50 and he preaches in the Jewish synagogue. And what does he preach? He says, let's get back to the scriptural Christ. Let's get back, let me take you back to the biblical Christ. 
Get rid of all this notion that is crept in of a political Christ. All this ideology and all this dreams of men to suit their own wishes and their own expectations, to realize their own agenda. Let's get back to the scriptural Christ. And so Paul comes, and the first thing he does is he proclaims the biblical scriptural Christ. He lifts him up and he knocks down this political figure that the Jews had come to expect. And in agreement with the Old Testament scriptures, and contrary to the popular teaching in the synagogues of the day, that Christ would not be a political freedom fighter. He would not be a military warrior. He would not drive out the Romans. He would not restore self-government. The Christ promised in the Old Testament scriptures would do two things, Paul said. Look at verse 3. Um, the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul says, let me show you the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ of dreams and imagination. And the Christ of Scripture had to suffer. He had to die. And he had to rise again. His death, a cruel, painful, shameful death, at the hands of his own people, we read about it there in Isaiah. Isaiah spoke about this kind of death for sin 800 years or 700 years. Uh, before it happened. And Isaiah wasn't alone in that. Genesis 3 verse 15. Deuteronomy 21. Psalm 2 that we sang from. Psalm 16. Psalm 110. Psalm 22. Daniel 7. Daniel 9. Those are just a small smattering of passages that said the Christ will suffer for sin. And so Jesus, as Jesus himself had done on the road to Emmaus, Paul opens up the Old Testament scriptures. He says, meet the Christ here who had to suffer. But then after his death, he would rise from the dead. He would come back to life. He would not continue dead. And this is the heart of Paul's message. He proclaims the biblical Christ of the Old Testament scriptures which taught clearly, consistently, comprehensively that the promised Saviour, the Messiah this one that would be born of a woman this one that would come from God would die and rise and this man and woman was and is and alone can be the gospel. This is the Christ that ministers and churches are to preach today. The Christ of Scripture. Not a Christ 
of our own imagination. Our own ideas. Or a Christ to fulfill our own expectations or our own needs. It's one of the sad, sad features of the professing evangelical church today that within sections of it, sadly, the Christ preached is scarcely identifiable with the Christ of Scripture. And the emphasis is not on those two things, his suffering for sin and his resurrection to make us right with God. No, instead, the Christ preached too often today is a Christ whom you need to cope with life's challenges and problems. A Christ who heals from cancer and pain. A Christ who makes healthy and wealthy. A Christ who uh, gives you uh, out of this world experiences. Churches tonight across our land, there's a Christ preached who still is casting out demons and giving people ability to cast out demons and working miracles and who's giving ongoing messages and utterances and prophecies. And it's a Christ of human imagination and fabrication that overlooks the scriptures the Old and the New Testament. Because what the Scriptures, Old and New, teach as central and universal and ongoing about the Christ is His work on behalf of sinners. His death and His resurrection. And that is the crucial teaching of Scripture about the Christ. And so the church needs to preach the scripture of Christ. And Jesus himself warned that false Christs and false prophets will appear. And they will perform great signs. And they will do great miracles. And men will run after them and they'll say, yes, these are men of the Christ. Or indeed, this is the Christ. And Christ said, they're not of him. They're of the devil. And they're out to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Did Christ not say that in the day of judgment, there will be people who will come before him, and they'll say to him, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not have utterances from heaven in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal people from illnesses in your name? (coughs) And what will he say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. We've got to proclaim in our day and generation the scriptural Christ who died and rose again. That is his great work. And this evening I ask you, 
Do you know that work in your own heart and your own life? Christ died for my sins on the cross, took my place, and Christ rose again from the dead in order to make me acceptable to God and that God would receive me as if I had never sinned. That's what it means to be saved. And if you don't know that tonight, you do not know the Christ. And if you do not know that tonight, we proclaim to you the Christ. And we say, come to this Christ. Confess your sin to this Christ. Believe in this Christ. Be saved through his work of dying and rising again. That's the scripture of Christ. And those of you who do believe, do not ever follow any other Christ that is presented to you. But then secondly, Paul proclaims, or proclaiming, the historical Jesus. Look at verse 3. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ You see, alongside or side by side with the promised one of the Old Testament, the Christ, Paul now introduces Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I want you to hold all those things I've said about the Christ in your mind, and now I want to tell you about this man who was born 50 years ago. This man uh, who lived uh, a life Uh, which was without sin. This man who did great miracles. This man uh, who raised the dead. This man uh, who died on the cross. This man who rose again. This Jesus who 50 days later, sorry, 40 days later, went up to heaven in the presence of 11 men. I want I want to introduce you, I want to tell you about this Jesus. And so Paul uses this word then, proclaiming Jesus. It comes out there in verse uh, 3, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you. That's a very powerful word, that word proclaim. It's a word that was used of official reports. That's what we might call them today. There's an investigation, there's an inquiry into some event that has happened, or there's research that's done in some area of need, and then there's a report produced, and it's given full authority. And in government circles, in the corridors of power, this word proclaim was used of official announcements, like games or festivals or holidays and you see Luke is saying and Paul is saying that this Jesus that I proclaim to you that he is as significant and as important as the official reports and the public announcements that are made by the leaders in our society And so, 
He proclaims the historical Jesus. He is to be made known. He's to be declared, presented, as an official report would be announced, as the findings of scientific research would be published. And you see, for Paul and for Luke, who's writing this story and this history, Jesus is someone of immense significance. Someone of utmost relevance. Someone that people need to hear about as much as a statement from the Roman government. Now, what is Paul doing here? When he says, I want you to hold in your mind everything I've said about the Christ of the Scriptures, and I want to tell you now about the Jesus of history, is he bringing two different individuals before them? No, he isn't. He's saying, this Jesus of history is the Christ of the Scriptures. Look at what he says. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. I'm not proclaiming to you two people. I'm proclaiming to you uh, the one and the same person. The person prophesied in the scriptures. The person who came in history. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And in every century The church is to proclaim the historical Jesus. Jesus is not some kind of mystical, make-believe fairy tale. He is a real man who was born into a real family, who had real flesh and bone like you and me, who walked along real streets, who lived among real people, who had real life experiences like you and like me. And we learn of this historical Jesus in the Gospels. Because here were men who rubbed shoulders with him and spent time with him and heard him speak and saw him do mighty works and saw him walk on water. And saw him change water into wine. And saw him heal the sick. And saw him cast out demons. They saw these works. And so that is the historical Jesus that they proclaimed. And that we are to proclaim. And we are to proclaim that this Jesus is the Christ. If there is one historical person whose biography and whose life you and I and every person needs to read and study and come to grips with, it's not Winston Churchill. It's not Elizabeth II. Interesting, informative, and instructive, though their life stories are and would be. Above and before and beyond them, you need to know the life story of Jesus of Nazareth.
And how will you do that? You will do that through the New Testament. The second half of the Bible. You will do that through putting yourself under the preaching of a church like our own church here. And how will our neighbours do that? How will they learn of the biography of Jesus? Only if the church today proclaims like Paul a real historical Jesus who is the Christ of the Scriptures. And that's the great need. Can I ask you this evening? Do you know the biography of the historical Jesus? Could you tell his life story? If the person sitting beside you tonight said, tell me, who was this Jesus? Would you be stuck for words? Would you have to say, I don't know? Would you stammer out a few sentences and then run dry, but you could talk all day about the Jubilee events or about the FA Cup final or the Heineken Cup final? If you don't know tonight the historical Jesus, grab a New Testament. Get to a church and learn of the historical Jesus. For he is the Christ who came and died for sins and rose again to save. And so we proclaim the historical Jesus. But then thirdly, and I'm going to have to cut the chase here because our time is gone, but he proclaiming, he's proclaiming the sovereign or universal Lord. The sovereign or universal Lord. And here now, and all I can do is touch on this tonight, we come to verse 7. The end of verse 7, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. This Christ of Scripture, promised in the Old Testament, who came to earth in the historical person of Jesus. What is he? Yes, he's a saviour from sin. But he's also a glorious king. He's a king. He reigns. He has subjects. Like any king, he commands respect. Like any king, he deserves honour. Like any king, he expects loyalty. Like any king, he demands submission. Like other kings, he has a kingdom. He sets up laws and sets out laws for citizens to live by. Like other kings, he protects his subjects. Like other kings, he will fight for his people. Like other kings, he is required to ensure justice for all. But Paul is saying something much more than that. He's not just an other king. 
He's not one of many kings. He's not just any king. He's not just one of a whole long line of kings and you could choose this one or this one or this one or this one. No, he is another king. And that word another is used to mean a king of a different type. He's a king of a different quality. He stands head and shoulders above other kings. He's over all the other kings. He's unique. He's the only one of a kind. And you see the people in Thessalonica where Caesar reigns uh, as the emperor of Rome. They are used to referring to Claudius, the emperor, as the king. And sometimes as lord. And Paul comes and he proclaims and he says, I want to tell you about another king. Far greater king. Far more worthy king. Far more enduring king than Claudius. And Jesus is not an equal to Claudius. He's not a competitor to Claudius. He's not a substitute for Claudius. He is supreme over Claudius. Above Claudius. Greater than Claudius. My Paul, how can that be? How can Jesus, this Jesus that you're preaching, be greater than Claudius? Think of the empire that Claudius rules over. Think of all the subjects that he has. Think of all the power that he has. Think of the army that he has. How can he be greater? Paul's answer is because he is the Christ, the promised one of God, the Son of God. The one whom we sang of in Psalm 2. The one appointed by God the Father to rule over all kings and civil governments and nations and all peoples. Jesus is another king. King of a different kind. He is king over Barack Obama. He is king over David Cameron. And he's king over Elizabeth II. There is another king. A king who is over your life and mine. To whom you and I must answer. One who wants your love and your honour and your obedience and your service. One who is your judge He comes to you and he says I'm the Christ of Scripture who died for sins who rose again to take away sin and you need to submit to me you need to kiss me you need to trust me as we sign there in Psalm 2 and I will forgive your sins and I will bless you and protect you, and provide for you, and do all those things that follow on from this most basic and central thing and crucial thing of dealing with our sin 
and making us right with God. I say to you tonight, what a king. What a king. What a king to know. What a king to love. What a king to serve. What a king to proclaim. Behold your king. In all his power and honour and glory. Behold him tonight as the scriptural Christ. The historical Jesus. In the one person. And the sovereign Lord. Of this universe. And over every human life. And bow down before him. And say Jesus. You are Lord. Jesus. You are my Lord. And then go out to proclaim him, fellow Christians, for who he is, and as Paul proclaimed him. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. We thank you, Almighty God, tonight for the Christ of Scripture, spoken of. For over 2,000 years in the first half of the Bible. And we thank you that he came to earth. The promised one from God came to earth in the historical Jesus. Born to Mary. Born in Bethlehem. Who grew up in Nazareth. Who at 30 years became a teacher preacher. And at 33 died on the cross Calvary for sins as the scriptures declared he would and he rose again. Thank you tonight that this this Christ Jesus is Lord. And we pray tonight that you would indeed make him real to each one of us. Is anyone here tonight He does not understand the Christ of the Old Testament. He does not know the historical Jesus of the Gospels. Lord, cause them this evening to say, I'm going to get a Bible. And I'm going to read it. Because I need to know of this one who can save me from my sins. And Lord God, for those of us who know Christ already, we pray, Lord God, that we would proclaim him. As Christ Jesus, the Lord, the King. And, O Lord, that our lives would proclaim him. And our lips would proclaim him. And that others would come to know him for who he is. Lord, for any who do not believe tonight, open their eyes that they will see King Jesus. And bow the knee before him. And say, You are my Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.